Well, welcome back to the Social World Podcast, Thoughts on the Social World. I'm Dave Niven, and as always, it's a delight to have you here on the program. Today, I've got a very special guest, somebody that I've neglected to talk to for a long time, and now it's a delight to have him here on the program. This is Peter Wanless, who's the Chief Executive of the NSPCC and has been since June 2013, but also and more power to him, he's just received a knighthood in the 2021 New Year's Honours list, so it's Sir Peter Wanless now. Peter, congratulations on that, many congratulations. I'm sure you deserve it thoroughly, and very much welcome to the programme. Thank you, David. Uh, That's very kind of you, and uh, yeah, huge privilege to be here. Okay, now, you've been there in the NSPCC, as we said, since 2013, Uh, I think there can't be very many people in our world that doesn't know what the NSPCC uh, generally is involved with, but obviously, specifically, it changes due to the circumstances of the country and the circumstances of the needs of young people and children. But research, influencing, advocacy, campaigning, I mean, they're all lifeblood of the charity. But can we just ask a little bit? I'd like to know, from your point of view, about your road to it. I mean, you've done it for seven years. Fine, yeah. okay. But what about before that? What's the, what was the kind of the road that Peter Wanless took? Um, well, uh, immediately before um, the NSPCC, I was the chief executive of what was then the Big Lottery Fund um, and is now the National Lotteries Community Fund. So I had the fantastic role of being responsible for distributing hundreds of millions of pounds to charities <laughs> and, and community groups, um, which sounds um, easier than it is because for every one um, group you please, there are another three or four that you're that you're yeah. turning down. Um, and um, so I had a huge kind of respect and admiration for all sorts of individuals and organisations that were achieving extraordinary things for people who deserve better. That was the great strength of the job, but it was also the weakness because you were sort of one step removed from um, actually being responsible for shaping and achieving that that change and then prior to um, the big lottery fund I had been a director in government so I'd spent the best part of uh, 20 years uh, at the department for for education um, latterly the department for children's schools and families and um, began my life um, in the treasury I used to sort of joke I used to joke with people that my heart's in the treasury um (laughs) Uh, but that was a so yeah civil servant um, uh, to begin with, but increasingly gravitating towards children's um, issues, and that really from from a career which was grounded in the kind of um, excitement and interest of of politics um, and the the game of policy making, um, I became as I became a father and as I got closer to children's issues you know increasingly passionate and concerned about the lives and the livelihoods and well-being of children so my journey really I suppose was from policy into policy affecting children out into engaging with charities and community groups and from there when there was the opportunity to apply uh, to run the NSPCC that really sort of brought everything mm. together so it feels quite logical in retrospect at the time I was really you know like a lot of people just you know having fun doing jobs that I enjoyed working with people that I admired and respected 
So, I mean, apart from, I mean, what was it like a slow absorption of awareness, if you like, in terms of the the the, the lot of, of disadvantaged children in society and what happened to them? Or was there any kind of particular road to Damascus? Uh, um, a, li a little bit of both. Um, my my mum, who died um, uh, quite a long time ago now, um, instilled in me a really sort of strong sense of, of moral purpose. So I've always felt a deep sort of sense of duty to look out for those less fortunate than um, uh, than ourselves. So that was, has always been kind of knocking around in my head and influencing my um, my, my decisions, I suppose, and my attitudes. Um, but um, there was a moment actually when I was at the Department for um, Education and I was the rather sort of laughably um, titled director of secondary education as if anyone can direct secondary education from Whitehall um, and uh, I went out to see um, a, a group who were being funded by a philanthropist in a school in North London to deliver um, uh, um, uh, public speaking skills to big black lads um, and they loved this group. Uh, actually, they weren't really coming to school, um, but they would come in after school um, to enjoy these public speaking lessons. And I thought this was uh, a revelation. It was really sort of inspirational learning, which they were enjoying. It was channeling their sort of sense of um, uh, social justice and kind of aggression and physical presence into something really powerful and, and positive, teaching them a skill which actually was great in and of itself because it was kind of motivating them to engage with with one another and to learn something, but also in employability terms had some value uh, as well. Um, and it was a bit of a kind of setup, really. And they sort of begged me to um, use some money from the Department for Education to keep this club mm. running. And um, it did have great value. At the time, I was responsible for the delivery target to get very many more children, five or more good GCSEs, including English and maths. And we had skewed lots of the money towards those um, achievements. And I still think, you know, when, scared, when resources are scarce, you need to have a set of priorities. And there's nothing more important than um, uh, the fundamentals of of English and maths and yet if you can't get the kids into the school to sit in English and maths lessons there really is a problem and unfortunately I couldn't find a way of um, uh, finding a grant even in the ethnic minority achievement grant terms and conditions at that time to support this group um, whereas the lottery was all about starting with the context the issues the challenges the opportunities that people and families were facing and then designing the funding um, from there. Mm. Um, so if there was a kind of moment, it probably was that one where I felt this shows that if you really know and understand and start with the context and the motivations of children and young people themselves and the lives they lead and what matters to them, you create rather different um, opportunities than when you... Um, drive them from the center and and there's a place for both but i became increasingly fascinated by that kind of um community engagement involvement voice of children and young people stuff and that's what led me into the lottery and then subsequently um into the nspcc 
No, it sounds like an, a, a, an appropriate trigger, if you like. I mean, I, I, there are moments like that, it sticks in your mind. Uh, if, it, if it wasn't important, it wouldn't have stuck in your mind. I think as far as the NSPCC is concerned, though, you've got such a broad base, it seems to me, if you like, outside looking in, that it must be difficult sort of constantly prioritizing and reprioritizing, in fact, in terms of all the different fronts that you yeah. um, you take responsibility for kind of engaging with. Is that a fair assumption? Definitely. The, the, the hardest question, I think, is making the choices about where to prioritize and, and, and focus attention. One of the great strengths, I think, of the NFPCC is the sharpness of our mission. So the purpose of the charity since 1884 has been to prevent cruelty to children. So we are really focused on um, abuse and neglect. And there are so many and varied ways in which um, uh, actions can be taken or issues might be associated with the general kind of well-being um, of children. And the NFPCC brand is so kind of visible that pretty much you know every day i'm asked to sign some letter or get involved with some campaign or other in order to make things better for children than would otherwise be the case and it's a it's a really important discipline to be focused um, at the charity on how can we make the most distinct contribution we can as the nspcd to the prevention of cruelty to children with a particular focus on that issues of um, abuse and neglect, and and I think you know my treasury background um, draws me to be as sharp as I possibly can on this because um, you know for years I was in a government department that was receiving letter after letter and claim after claim and uh, concern after concern about um, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need mm -hmm. to do um, the other, and I don't think it's enough if if, if it becomes children's charity says make things better for children or children's charity says give more money to children's issues that's of course yeah. that is what we think but but that's not to my mind how you achieve palpable measurable change in the in the short to medium term so yeah we really need on where we can make the most distinct difference so for example over the period and NSPCC, we've placed a huge priority on the safety and well-being of children in the online world and drawn this really sharp distinction between how the fundamentals of child protection are designed into the offline world in a way that is pretty much absent from, from online services. And, and, and we're still fighting that battle. It's a great achievement, I think. Government is now going to uh, legislate to introduce um, a regulator with real powers to protect children online and to design that duty of care. And then there's still a great deal to play, but that is a, a transformational change that by focusing on a particular issue or theme and battling away and battling away and battling away and placing it in the context and the language of child protection, we are helping, I think, to make a distinct and measurable difference. No, I mean, more party elbow there, but I mean, I couldn't agree more with you that it's an enormity of a task now that the internet is so dominant um, and that the offenders are so multiple and that children are so vulnerable. And um, I mean, we'll talk about it in a sec, but I imagine during the pandemic, obviously, we all agree that the vulnerability has, has increased 
and that must be an, an enormous worry to frontline staff. I mean, maybe we can move on to that and talk about now because I, I listened recently to some words that you were saying about what the current priorities were, if you like. And, and if I remember rightly, there were three that you put forward were a broad brush, supporting young people, supporting yep. yourselves, the staff, and yep. then making sure that you try to maintain the financial base for the charity because it's uh, you rely so much. I think it's about 90% on voluntary donations. Yeah. So, I mean, effectively, um, is that, that, that still maintains your immediate priorities? Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. In fact, the, the first meeting back with the leadership group last week, I was reiterating those three themes. I think they've served us well and they've served us well in that order. So we must be the best we possibly can for children and, and young people. And at a time when we've gone into this third um, significant lockdown, there are many more children out of sight, out of reach and out of mind compared with normal circumstances. And we all know that when children aren't seen, aren't heard, don't have the ability to speak up, that heightens the um, uh, uh, the abuse and neglect risks. So we have a real responsibility as the NSPCC to use our voice and to use our services to create um, the visibility um, and the outlet to support those children directly or, or indirectly. But at the same time as me pronouncing that, if I simply kind of state that without any empathy or understanding of the incredibly challenging environment that so many of our volunteers and staff are, are operating in at the moment with death in their families, with vulnerable elderly relatives, with homeschooling responsibilities. Mm. All of that needs to be understood and respected and managed, but with an eye to um, not overwhelming us, but enabling us to be the best we can um, for children. And, and then if we do all of that, but fail to remember that if we don't raise funds to support our work, we won't be here anymore. Um, that is a, a significant problem mm. too. And like all sorts of organisations, we are operating in a really challenged financial um, environment. So while it's been extraordinary to see the imagination and the um, uh, and the passion and, and, and the dedication people have shown both to raise funds and to donate funds and to donate time to the work that we're seeking to deliver as, as a charity it is relentless. No um, I appreciate I appreciate that I was just going to ask you really I, I mean with all the different outlets if you like that you've got or the kind of if you like the public interface with research or with training or with your, your yeah. the child line, you know, the, the helpline and so forth and, yeah. and other things. I mean, how would you classify your relationship with statutory services? Uh, <laughs> um, I think it's really important that we have constructive relationships with statutory services where we can appreciate and complement what one another are up to. And that's not always straightforward. Um, we do need to shout about what we're up to and the importance and the challenge of, of, of what we do sufficiently to be able to raise the awareness and the funds to do what we need to do. But I think it's really important that we do that in a way that's 
respectful of the contributions that, that others make. Because although people think of the NFBCC as a as a tiny, uh, as a, sorry, as a huge organization, a kind of iconic brand, actually we're tiny in relation to the scale of the issues and challenges around abuse and neglect. You know, if we raise a hundred million pound in a year, there are there are billions of pounds being spent on the wider child protection system. So we've really got to create this strong sense of shared purpose and an understanding. So it is though it is though a multi-agency world now, wouldn't you agree? I mean in the sense that and, and with the voluntary sector essentially being a, a full partner, but even so, you know, you've got health, you've got education, you've got the law enforcement as well as local authority. Um, yeah. you know and to, we, we, yeah. Sorry, and we and we've taken a particular uh, approach to our direct services to, if you like, try and position ourselves as a research and development arm for the wider statutory mm -hmm. purposes. So, because of the way we're funded, we're able to spot gaps, take risks, invest in research in ways that I was never able to do when I was responsible for statutory services because of the immediate and urgent legal responsibilities I had the children who were in particularly hmm. defined uh, situations of, uh, of of need. So one of the distinct things which the NSPCC can do with its direct services is to test and learn and evidence and then hopefully inform and inspire well beyond what we do ourselves. So take the risk out of some of that um, uh, statutory um, testing, uh, not because we're any cleverer or any better than anybody else, but that, that, hey, because of the nature of the way in which we're funding, it gives us the kind of unique opportunity to work in a complementary yeah. fashion. And similarly, yeah. Childline, Childline as a confidential service um, has a particular and distinct um, role to play. And it's understanding and respecting those differences that I think is what leads us to the to the big prizes. No, I, I, I was actually going to say that I kind of, um, I hoped you were going to say stuff like that because essentially it is what I see is, if you like, the landscape of the moment. I mean, you have in the NSPCC unique skills and resources, um, but blended together is the best way yeah. with, with the rest of the team, if you want to look at it that way, in terms of the agencies and the other involvements with protecting children. That, would that be a reasonable assessment? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Now, somewhere else I heard that you are beginning, or you've already developed, I don't know, a new strategy yeah. that's going to begin this year. Do you yeah. want to say anything about that that's not already kind of under wraps? Uh, yeah, no, I'm very happy to, because I think we're sort of growing into it um, all the time. We have been um, uh, asking ourselves um, and asking others um, where and how can the NSPCC make its most uh, distinct contribution. Very conscious that if nothing changes, um, there are going to be significantly larger numbers of children um, experiencing abuse and neglect um, by uh, 2030 and um, significantly more children and young people living in situations of uh, poverty uh, and other aspects of, of, of heightened risk. Um, the, the statutory uh, services have legal obligations and responsibilities um, 
already to meet the needs of children in particularly sort of desperate situations. And I think for us to um, replicate that isn't a best use of our funds. We, we need to understand and draw attention to and advocate for children who are in um, desperate situations, but more generally, and, and the clue is in, in the name of prevention of cruelty to children, we need mm. to get a bit more upstream as an organisation and help very many more people see and understand that there are things which they can do to help keep children safer than would otherwise be the case. So let's understand and respect the expert um, uh, social workers and practitioners, but let's also look at how we can mobilize and enable very many more people to, um, uh, to play a part in keeping children safe. So the underwear rule, Pantsaurus, and all the work we've done there to try and help parents and families have straightforward conversations with their children about how to stay safe from sexual abuse without mentioning the word sex or without mentioning the word abuse is one kind of example I think of where the NSPCC can encourage and enable some of the kind of heavy lifting around prevention um, that gets well beyond um, the expert services and, and similarly our um, speak out stay safe service which is now in well, in normal times, in over 90% of primary schools, um, introducing young people to the notion of trusted adults and what to do if you have a worry or a, a concern. Uh, and if there isn't a trusted adult in your life, then Childline is there at the kind of uh, fail safe to, to support you. So one important theme of the strategy will be this democratisation, this opening up of... Um, keeping children safe so I hope many many more people will say yes that's a really important issue that's something um, I understand and appreciate and I can play a part in in relation to the children in my life and my community. Well that's interestingly enough somewhere where we, I, I found there's a bit of, I've came across a bit of an overlap in work that I've been doing as well with yourselves I mean on a slightly light-hearted note did you ever think when you were at school that you would ever, ever have any use for Venn diagrams. <laughs> I, I didn't. But then if you look at well, where overlaps, it's I, I've been working with a, a children's author for the last sort of three or four years. We put conferences on together. Christina Gabitas. Oh, yes. And Christina is oh. now part of your advisory council or whatever in terms of the books that she's written for, for primary school children in terms of keeping safe. Because um, and therefore I've I've come across your your name and your work and your library yeah. you know quite quite constructively and that fits in obviously to part of this initiative that you're going to be ramping up this year. I mean, yeah, I, I just was saying. So I, I love hearing lateral thinking. You know, if you see what I mean, I, I, it, you know, rather than the traditional just people saying, you know, don't hurt children for goodness' sake, think about it, blah blah blah. You've got to actually give people tools and give people examples. And I think that kind of thing, the the written examples that you've taken on board and the the way you've got into schools like that has, 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 is is a better way. Yeah, and I, I think I mentioned this in the in the other interview you were uh, describing recently, but another really uh, great example would be the partnership we've got with Deliveroo at the moment. Oh, so um, oh. uh, there, there was a 
uh, a Bilibaru rider who was out and about and saw something happening to a child which really worried him. So he contacted the NSPCC um, helpline and um, with the help of the appropriate services, we safeguarded and supported uh, a child who was in really um, imminent danger. But on the back of that conversation, we had a really good discussion with the company about, well, what would it be like if um, uh, all delivery um, riders were kind of eyes and ears for children out and about in the community, especially at a time when um, many more children are are, are less visible to mm-hmm. people in and around schools. So um, on the back of that, we've trained thousands of delivery riders um, with our short course, It's Your Call, which helps people spot the immediate signs of um, uh, child abuse and, and, and neglect and alerts them to how they can contact um, the NSPCC um, or statutory services if they have a, uh, a worry or concern. So this isn't about turning the nation into a kind of army of um, snoopers or expert social workers, but giving people just enough knowledge to recognise that if they have a worry, there are people um, around them who can help them resolve that locally, yeah, ideally, totally. uh, if possible, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, connect the child to the trusted adult in their life, or in the case of uh, an emergency, get the essential help that's needed as uh, as rapidly as possible. So if we can do that with delivery drivers, there are all sorts of, then you can start the lateral thinking going, well, hmm, I wonder what we can do with pharmacists or... Um, oh, oh, goodness gracious, don't start satellite me. Satellite <laughs> or, you know... I do think, Peter, that, that I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I mean, it, it, you're, you're feeding into stuff that I hope is going to be much more um, prominent in terms of kind of safeguarding thinking. Because, I mean, when I was chairing various sort of safeguarding boards, I mean, I know that the law enforcement targeted very strongly the, the nighttime community, the nighttime, yeah. in, whether it's taxi drivers or whether it's fast food outlets or whatever, training them up in the same way that you're talking about Deliveroo drivers. Or, yeah. You know, I mean, it's a community responsibility, the safety of our children. I, I've got no problem with that whatsoever. Um, but look, we've got not a huge amount of time left. Can I just bring in a couple of more subjects just to see what your thinking is, please? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know one of the things that you were particularly focused on was early years. And uh, in the past, I've been very privileged to do a couple of conferences with Tessa Jowell, who, of course, did the Sure Start setup. And, yeah. um, you know, about the first thousand years of a child's life and the absolute crucial prominence of that, um, you know, th- these first from the, the from conception through to age two and yeah. effectively how important it is um whether it's the toxic trio of mental health drugs drink alcohol domestic violence whatever on the parent during that time and the impact on the child for the rest of their lives or whatever but do you find any more um traction if you like within statutory and governmental authorities for actually reinvigorating the importance of that uh gosh yes there's lots to reflect on there Uh, Mm. i i I think that um tiny babies were were regrettably forgotten um relative to a number of other really important audiences in lockdown first time round and I think that has been recognised and, and, un, and understood, you know, the way in which um, 
health visiting was was hollowed out as an easy saving while people raced towards dealing with the covid emergency was a was a false economy so mm. so that is a kind of negative which i think there is a i sense there's a real kind of understanding in government that that needs to be uh, better we've got uh, Andrea Leadsom and her thousand day um, review um, going on, which I think is an opportunity, uh, again, in a, in a kind of cross party way to build on the importance of this issue. Actually, one of the most fascinating things that we're involved in at, at the NSPCC is the Better Start programme, mm -hmm. uh, which um, uh, yeah, I helped uh, design back in the day when I was at the, the big lottery fund. And then um, the NSPCC is one of, leads one of five partnerships. Um, uh, across the country that is looking at how you design services around the needs of tiny children and their families, um, as opposed to delivering them down um, uh, functional silos. And the NSPCC chairs Blackpool Better Start in, in Blackpool. And that is a really interesting example of cross-functional mm, working mm. where the governance is designed to take decisions in the best interests of the of the children and the families and uh, i chair the board but we have the leader of blackpool council we have the uh, the nhs we have um uh, key businesses and community groups across the town um, all working together to design services around needs and well-being of children so so i think yeah there is I think there's an increasing acknowledgement that these early years are really important and there's some quite fascinating policy experiments underway of which you know Blackpool Better Start is one that I think um, we have a, a real chance to build on. Okay well look I mean we're nearly at the end but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be right if I didn't ask you to sort of say that, that for all the people that listen to us whether it's the voluntary sector the statutory sector here abroad wherever I mean, the pandemic is um, still raging, if you like, within communities mm -hmm. and causing all the issues that we've talked about in terms of actual vulnerability of children, young people and their carers. What message would you give out to, well, not just your own volunteers, of course, but other people who are thinking of volunteering um, and messages to, if you like, colleagues in yeah. the statutory services um, who are possibly listening to this as well. I mean, and it's not unfortunately just a UK matter. So, I mean, I think we have got an international audience as well, but to be quite frank with you and some of the podcasts that I've been doing recently, the similarities are frightening. Um, would yeah. you like to just sort of say how you see things and, and how you would encourage people to come forward if that's indeed what you'd like to do? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I am in awe of the remarkable work which so many uh, volunteers and um, uh, staff have done to be there for the children in these incredibly challenged times. And, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it's remarkable the pace at which really um, uh, skilled people and well-motivated people have used their talents to um, reinvent the ways in which they are seeking to be there for children and young people um, through this um, through this time. And we've had rounds of applause for 
um, NHS workers rightly. Um, there are incredible people who've been, as I say, doing great stuff with children and young people and banging the drum for the critical importance of ensuring that young people are not defined by COVID, but are the people who live through uh, an exceptional period and learned from it and were supported from it and came out the other side, not defined by a trauma, but supported to understand, you know, an exceptional experience which helped them uh, lead for further and better enriched lives um, into the future. So uh, my message really is one of thanks and admiration for um, uh, people working with children and volunteering to support children and anything that I can do to continue to draw attention to um, the vital need to hear from children and young people and understand and respect and appreciate how things are feeling to them at the present time. Um, I'll, I'll continue um, to do that. My worry is, you know, last time round there was rather too much of adults, you know, shouting at one another over the heads of of children rather than engaging involving children in um, what yeah. was really them so they could make good sense of it all right well look peter it's been a real pleasure talking to you i mean i'm sure we could double the time uh, and maybe in the not too distant future perhaps we can have another session because i you know this is not a, unfortunately a sort of a, a quick fix that's going to happen but i really do appreciate you spending the time and thank you very much uh, sir Peter Wallace, <laughs> for being on the programme and um, for giving us your thoughts. So thank you very much again. Thanks, David. It's a pleasure.